How does a highly educated and successful lawyer end up savagely killing his girlfriend? It's an unusual profile for a murderer. But on June 23, 2012, Wall Street attorney Jason Bond did exactly that. Your hands go from her wrists to her neck. I think even more than that, I think I punched her probably, kicked her. I lost it. I didn't, you know, it's, this is not something that's premeditated. You think about the consequences. is Dr. Michelle Ward. I'm a criminal psychologist and trial consultant. I've spent my career researching hundreds of murder cases to try to determine what drives someone to kill. Because the more we understand about criminal behavior, the better chance we have at preventing it in the future. What Investigation Discovery asked me to go behind prison walls to talk face-to-face -face with six violent killers I had no hesitation in saying yes. Most crime shows are whodunits, but this is different. I want to know why they committed their crimes. And go inside the mind of a murderer. Danielle Thomas was a beautiful and kind girl she grew up in a tight-knit family in Kentucky. Everyone said she had very strong values and she was very patient and compassionate. Everyone who knew her just described her as lovely. We're about to hear from retired NYPD detective Dennis Frawley. He met Danielle two weeks before she died. Danielle reminded me of the kind of young lady when she was young. She brought home all the hurt animals and lost birds and things like that. She had that kind of way about her. She was a good soul. Danielle was an absolute sweetheart. But she was also really driven and fiercely smart. She got her MBA and became a successful executive. When she fell in love with Wall Street lawyer Jason Bond in 2011, she was probably very optimistic about the future. Then, on June 24, 2012, Jason Bond the man she loved, strangled and stomped her to death. He was sentenced to life in prison. For the past three years, Jason Bond has been locked up in the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. And I've gotten permission to meet with him face to face. This prison location is bizarre. It's in a completely residential neighborhood, so you're passing through this tiny little cute, quaint town, and then there's this giant fortress, and it's a prison. It looks like a castle. Unlike most criminals I meet with, Jason's really educated. In fact, he has a doctorate. So I'm thinking this interview is going to be very interesting, to say the least. Jason walks in the room, and it's like, whoa, the tension is so thick. He's staring right at me with eyes like I've never seen before. I mean, wide eyes, almost like an animal. Hello. Hi. 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 Hi
Hi. Hello. Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Ward. Nice to meet you, nice Jason Bond. Nice to have a seat. Jason is now 36 years old. He's this big, tall redhead, and he has a very intense, almost detached way about him. Why did you want to do this interview with me today? Our doctor said there was something wrong with me. The prosecution's doctor said there was something wrong with me. The doctor here is saying there's something wrong with me. I mean, I'm starting to believe that there's probably something wrong with me. Jason and I sort of have conflicting agendas here. I feel that he probably wants to present himself in the best light, which could possibly help him in his appeal. And I need the truth. I need to know exactly what went on that night. I need to know how he, in particular, that type of person, turns into a killer. I can't enrage him, and I know he has a tendency to become enraged. I need to keep him calm because I can't have him walking out. On the surface, it looks like Jason comes from what you'd call good stock. His mother is a very bright, very wealthy executive from a publishing company in New York. But things actually weren't rosy at home at all. Jason had a nightmarish childhood. His parents divorced early, and both of them neglected and abused Jason and his brother. My father had a cocaine and crack problem. Was your father physically violent with you and your brother? Yeah, yeah, very, very violent. How did you feel about your father? I hated him. From multiple court documents, it seems it was no secret that Jason's mother preferred working to spending time with her young son. It seems like there was no maternal warmth, and she had no problem throwing her children aside for her own selfish goals. My mother leaves me in the apartment by myself. At 14? No, at like 13. Mm. The neighbors are watching me come in with groups of older, darker kids. So they're calling the Child Protective Services, and my mother finds out, and her and my stepfather come to the apartment. She beat me up. Here's what Patrick O'Connor, the lead prosecutor on the murder case, had to say. His mother wanted nothing to do with him, and in fact explicitly said that her career was more important than her son. Jason's mother was charged with neglect and abuse and ended up pleading guilty. Concerned that the negative press would be bad for her career, in 1993, she forfeited her rights to her children and gave up 14-year-old Jason. Usually when a mother abandons their child, it's because they don't have the financial resources to take care of them, or they're just not psychologically able to do it. But for somebody of sound mind and sound resources to abandon their children, it's very unnerving, and it's rare. Studies show that this kind of early trauma can cause psychological damage that contributes to the chances of somebody becoming a violent criminal. His mother doesn't want him. His dad is a drug addict, so Jason is sent into foster care. Whatever family unit he had has been blown apart. To deal with this pain, he developed coping skills, but not very healthy ones. I'd I'd started to become more of an aggressor than the victim. I wasn't being bullied anymore. I was the bully. I would say over time I became violent, yes. I would have outbursts. How did you feel physically when you would assault somebody? Sometimes I would shake, cry, foam from the mouth. 
Sometimes I would feel like I was watching it over there. I think Jason might have an actual biological problem in his brain. Like his limbic system, the area that generates impulses and emotion, like it's on overdrive or something, like an animal. The animal just doesn't have the cerebral cortex to calm himself down. We all have impulses that are generated by the subcortical regions. We all feel rage and emotions, but we can calm ourselves down. Do you know these are going to happen before they happen? Is it somebody no, gets under your skin no, or it just it just will it will just happen? It's just like that. During my case research, I found out that Jason had a pattern of violence. He had struck many people in the past, including his girlfriends. I've probably hit a thousand people in my life. So like right now you could get angry with me and feel like hitting me. I could. And at some point he did try to gain control over this dark side. After his horrific childhood and bouncing around foster homes, he did make a decision at some point to turn this intensity into something positive. Through hard work and scholarships, and really against all odds, Jason ends up graduating from Columbia University and goes on to become an attorney for big Wall Street firms like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. I was always very sensitive and very intense. And I think other people had described me as intense. And I'm going to describe you as intense. Yeah, I, so that intensity could be channeled and it could work to my benefit. And I could be very productive and I could function on less sleep and stay focused. Uh, and I would do anything. One year into his new career as this high-powered Manhattan lawyer, Jason was happy. And that's when he met 26-year-old Danielle Thomas on a trip to Florida. What attracted you to Danielle? Um, just her carefree attitude. Uh, she was very adventurous, fun-loving. Was it love at first sight? Yeah, I think so. The relationship moved really quickly, and after only five months, they moved together into an apartment in Astoria, Queens, along with Danielle's cute little dog, Schnoozer. Schnoozer the Schnauzer. Underneath this happy arrangement that Jason and Danielle have found, there's still an undercurrent of damage and destruction. Jason has never addressed the problems from his past, and he's never addressed this impulse problem he has, these rages he has, and it's not going to take much to push those buttons. Their trigger in their relationship was jealousy and infidelity, and there's no evidence that Danielle was ever unfaithful to Jason, but real or perceived, in Jason's world, in his reality, he was being cheated on, and he was going to be abandoned again. How did you know she was lying? Because I'm good at, I mean, I, I ask the same question five different ways. I'm, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I think Jason is probably able to keep relationships together in the beginning. But once real trust comes into it, he's going to struggle. He doesn't have 
the ability. He doesn't have the coping skills. He doesn't know how to really engage in a truly trustful, intimate relationship. At some point, it's all going to come crumbling down. His rage gets too strong, and he responds physically to this. The first time you strike Danielle, what did that feel like? It felt very bad. We got into an argument about something, and I left. And I'm walking in the parking lot trying to get away from her. She's following me, and she grabs my hand, and I smack her in the face. This is a red flag for Danielle. She's seeing a monstrous side to her boyfriend and that there is potential for real danger here. But Jason, of course, apologizes to Danielle, and she believes him. She believes he'll never hit her again. He picked the sweetest of the sweet. This was the girl who wasn't going to leave, and she believes she can save him, and she's willing to sacrifice her own safety to at least try. But one day, they got into an argument, and his rage was triggered again. Except this time, it's worse. What changed in the relationship to make it so bad at that point? Well, I had found out that she was still communicating with this ex-boyfriend. So you strike her again? Yeah. Here's Patrick O'Connor, the lead prosecutor, again. He proceeded to beat her, he uh, punched her in the face, He beat her about the body. He just keeps hitting her. She falls to the ground, but he still doesn't stop. They report seeing her crawling down the corridor between the apartments. And then you come out. What happened? I don't know. Why was she crawling? I don't know. Do you remember any of it? Mm Mm-mm. No. Do you really not remember it? I don't remember it. I mean, I remember what it felt like afterwards. I felt horrible. And I was crying and... I just, I didn't want to be around her. Come on, Jason. The onus was on you. If this girl still keeps coming back to you, then you run, you run away, and you save her. But it is very hard to deny that Jason, too, was a victim um, as a child. But he's no longer the victim as an adult. Now it's his job to recognize that he is now the abuser. Danielle hobbled into Detective Frawley's precinct with her dog, Schnoozer. He remembers the meeting well. Thomas reported that she was a victim of domestic violence at the hands of her boyfriend, Mr. Jason Bone. She had bruises. She had all types of injuries to back this up. The judge gave Danielle a temporary order of protection, but unfortunately, she just refused to prosecute. I don't think I'll ever forget this. She said to me, sir, I love Jason, and I want to save him. And with Jesus' help, I'm going to save him. And I said to her, well, if Jesus were here, I'm sure he'd want you to use your God-given common sense and stay away from him. And she said, well, thank you very much. Picked herself up, shook my hand, walked out the door forevermore. That's the last time I saw her alive. It's not uncommon for women in domestic violence relationships to return to the abuser. 
You must remember, Danielle has seen a great side of Jason. She knows he can be good. So she believes him when he says he loves her and he apologizes. And you know what? He believes himself at that point. So then there's a honeymoon period where everything is fine. But sure enough, the old patterns, they creep back in again. And there it is. There's the cycle. Then the abuse begins again. And 16 days later, on June 23, 2012, his dark side would completely overpower him. And they get in a fight at this bar for a going away party for Jason's friend, Suzanne. Jason leaves and Danielle confides in Suzanne. Suzanne was worried, so she puts her number into Danielle's phone and even offers to help get her a hotel room but Danielle refuses and decides to go home. Still furious, Jason snatched her phone and saw a new number. He didn't recognize it as Suzanne's and immediately assumed that Danielle had been calling her ex-boyfriend. He started hitting her, stomping on her, strangling her. During the attack, Danielle manages to call 911 without Jason knowing. Here's a recording of the actual 911 call. 911, The operator heard the assault in progress. Hello, ma'am. Ma'am, hello? They knew where this was happening because it was not the only 911 call that was made that night. Neighbors were calling. There was plenty of opportunity to save Danielle. And yet there's a shift change and then some other minor issue that they're dealing with and the ball's dropped and nobody comes. At 3.20 a.m., 50 minutes after the 911 call, nobody knows exactly how it happened, but somehow a call went out from Danielle to Suzanne's cell phone. The voicemail is harrowing. It's, It's chilling, and it's very difficult to listen to. Here's a small portion of it. So what happened? I can't breathe. Listening to the audio of this, you hear these conflicting things. You hear Jason so driven and direct and articulate. Danielle, you have five seconds. You're so stupid. You think I'm going to stop. I'm not going to stop. And then he goes into this like wailing, moaning cry. And it's almost like you feel him trying to get out of this. You feel him trying to overcome this major impulse control problem he has, this this demon he can't quell. You see Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde really battling it out. When Danielle answered, I don't know, Jason stomped her to death. But Jason claims he remembers nothing from that night. I just don't remember any of it. I don't believe you. Would you believe you if you were me? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. 
I grilled Jason about the murder multiple times from different angles, but he would not change his story. Either he really doesn't remember or he's lying. It is possible that in an intense emotional state, you can have so much adrenaline and cortisol going through your body that you can erase memory. You can have sort of an amnesia, but I don't believe for a second that he doesn't remember any portion of this incident. Your memory doesn't conveniently stop at the start of a beating and come back when the violence is over. Typically, some details are going to break through. I can tell you what happened the next day. I wake up and I have all my clothes on. I go into the bedroom. She's unconscious on the floor. Unconscious or dead? Oh, I guess dead. And then I took her to the bathtub and then I turn on the cold water in the shower, try to revive her. Nothing. Then what did you feel at that moment? What do you think I felt? I think you felt panic. Yeah, panic. I didn't know, I didn't know how I was in this situation. So what did you do? So then uh, I sat there and I smoked a, like a ton of weed. And then um, and I got bags to preserve her body. Why? To give myself time to figure out whether I was going to kill myself, turn myself in, or run. Damage control. Mm-hmm. Self-preservation. Mm-hmm. He put her body in the bathtub, and he tried to keep the scent of the decaying body at bay by using ice and a fan. He texted Danielle's friends from her phone to make them think that she was okay and alive. Suzanne got the text, but didn't notice the voicemail from the night before. Then Jason went on the run and emailed his mother. Your email struck me. It seemed remorseless. Hmm. In that you say, I am in or will be in a lot of trouble. Not Danny was dead. I must have killed Danny. Yeah, I didn't want to. I, I wasn't in touch with reality yet. And gave yourself an excuse. I haven't come to terms with these psychological issues from my childhood. I mean, that, that's just the truth. And then you write in this email, I need you to hire me an attorney. Do you think it's your mother's fault that you said? No, sit? no, not at all. Here. Not at all. It's not her fault at all. I think it's more, I wanted her to help me get at. So it's just know, self-serving. Yeah. I think Jason felt that his mother owed it to him to get him out of this mess. And whether he realized it or not, Jason does blame and resent his mother for his terrible childhood. She did get him a lawyer, and in doing so, probably figured she was keeping her own image clean. Two days went by, nobody reports Danielle missing. Then Jason did something that made no sense. He called police and told them to check on her at the apartment. But he's alerted them to the murder, and they will no doubt finger him for the crime. So what on earth was he thinking? Reflecting back on it, I wonder if maybe it's because he was worried about the dog. Or maybe he just wanted it all to end.
So after he gets the call, Detective Frawley goes to the scene. This is what he remembers. As I got closer to the bathroom, I heard a dog barking. The dog was protecting its owner. The body was in the bathtub. And when I turned and I recognized who she was, on that side of her face, it looked as though she was kicked. He killed her. I knew that right there and then. They launch a full-on manhunt for Jason, and detectives finally tracked him down in New York. They arrested him and charged him with first-degree murder. His trial began in February 2014. No surprise here, but Jason's mother never showed up in court. Jason's defense team claimed that because of his abusive childhood, he suffers from something called intermittent explosive disorder. It's basically someone who is generally calm and rational until something triggers an out-of-control rage. And they hoped it would provide a clinical explanation for why he killed Danielle. Essentially, you're being told you have this brain that doesn't work quite right. Do you buy that? I feel like there's definitely something wrong with me. As you know, there have been people with horrible backgrounds who don't become killers. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not the doctor. Is that an excuse? Um... He knew he was dangerous, and he should have separated himself. And I know he can try hard. I know he can, because he has pulled himself out of the depths of despair and abuse and become a very successful student and attorney, and yet he did not try hard enough to get his demons under control. As for remorse, in court, Jason offered a tearful apology to Danielle's family. And, uh, I don't know what to say. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I don't know how this happened. The jury convicted 35-year-old Jason Bond of first-degree murder. On April 15, 2014, he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life behind bars. At the end of the day, we can't forget that there's this beautiful, kind young woman who loved Jason and yet died by his hands. Detective Frawley says this case affected him so deeply that he decided to retire from the police after 31 years. I couldn't bring her back. I couldn't make her better. I couldn't. I couldn't do a thing. Not a day goes by. I don't think about it. Not one day. I try to turn it into positive energy. If I hear or know of a domestic situation, I get some help. I walked away from this interview with a feeling I hadn't had before. I was slightly traumatized by it. Hearing the audio of the murder was such a rare event. It was so painful to listen to, and I still have nightmares about it. But as a criminal psychologist, it also allowed me another way inside the mind of a very intelligent, complex killer. 
Join me on the next podcast where I'll take you to meet Janine Patton, a raucous spitfire who shot her husband in the head with a shotgun. Stay tuned. For Atlas Media, the producers are Bruce David Klein, Lori Layton, Fanny Cohen, and Samantha Grogan. For Investigation Discovery, the producers are Liz Massey, Jamie Lane, Christina Douglas, and Sarah Kozak. Kevin Bennett is general manager, and Henry Schleif is the network president. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward. Michelle Ward.